Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined, as always, by co-host Corey. Today, we're back with the return of Mr. Garth Mullins. How are you doing, Garth? Hey, not so bad. Uh, thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for coming back, Garth. It was uh, it was March 3rd, uh, 2022, that we talked to you last. A lot has gone on since then. At that time, the experiment of, of distributing a, a safe supply, sort of a uh, an ad hoc safe supply in, in the downtown east side was going on to, to Dolph members. And I kind of left the conversation with you feeling some optimism and feeling some just like we were stepping in the right direction. And then a little bit earlier in this year, um, there was sort of an incremental decriminalization that happened. So things that kind of were starting to feel a little bit optimistic or hopeful. And then, you know, I, I reached out to you in thinking, I reached out to you earlier in the month and thinking that we could have another chat and kind of a, a one-year follow-up. And that was actually right before um, the news of the sweeps of the downtown east side happened. And mm. and that has taken all any optimistic or hopeful or good feeling and, and really shat on it. So it's good to have you here to talk and, and, but I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I want to go back a little bit. So I guess the first question I have for you is since the, that small measure of, of safe supply was, was introduced by the drug users liberation front. Uh, and then we've seen this incremental decrim happen where you can carry a small amount of, of your drug of choice. Are you seeing any positive effects of that or what, what is the effect that you see? Well, let's, let's break them down into two things. Uh, the drug user liberation front started doing this, um, community-based safe supply project kind of first, first effort was in 2020. And this is to just give out tested small amounts of tested heroin, um, meth and Coke to community members. So it kind of looks like this packaged in this little box. Oh my God, there it is. Mm. Uh, it's not looking very good on the screen there, but for uh, people on the podcast, what I'm showing is, uh, you know, a small package box that says, uh, uh, the drug user liberation front heroin gives the breakdown of, you know, the percent, you know, like, a 91% heroin, some caffeine, that sort of thing. Um, and that's the same kind of packaging you'll see on the cocaine and the meth amphetamine. And mm -hmm. we figured out from mass spectrometry, right? So we source these drugs and then run it through a mass spec to make sure there's no um, surprises in there or contaminants or things that could cause a, a kind of a big overdose because people don't know and then distribute them to people who are members of the group. Of course, the, the scale is rather small and modest. So, um, you know, this is maybe done one day a month. It could be, could have been done maybe a dozen or, or uh, 15 times since the group started. And, uh, and it's the idea is to show how simple uh, safe supply could be. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's a huge number of people who need this. There's, uh, you know, 100,000 uh, daily opioid user type people like like myself in BC. And then there's many, many more who are recreational users, but who are just as vulnerable to overdoses. And so we don't have the reach of the state. You know, the government has a medical system and doctors and prescribing and relationships with pharmaceutical manufacturers. We are illegal. The state won't let us do this. You know, it doesn't give us sanction or license or anything. So we have to do this entirely on the, uh, you know, on the wrong side of the law. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to replicate the state's reach. And so I don't think that you will see, say, overdose death statistics influenced by the Dolph distribution. Not, I mean, not yet. We're, we're mm -hmm. far too small. 
Um, this is though the tradition of civil disobedience in uh, for for drug user movements for all kinds of movements and marginalized people is you you break an unjust law you show what's possible we did that before with safe injection sites and with needle distribution um, you know going back a few decades now but um, it's just it's proof that you sort of got to twist the government's arm and try and force them to to get with the program uh, unfortunately that's not happened yet <clears throat> the second thing you asked was decriminalization and, you know, this has been a, a demand from the movement for, um, you know, 25 or 30 years. And we did twist the government's arm on this one. And, of course, the, the government never gives you the full program. They never really give you what you're asking for. They, they kind of give the minimum possible watered-down version. And, and so, um, you know, we're, we're seeing just we're still in the first couple of months of this pilot project where you can carry in British Columbia a total of 2.5 grams of um, you know, opioids, um, cocaine, meth, or MDMA. And, um, you know, that we, we would like to see that, um, that threshold be a little bit higher. Uh, but also, um, you know, in my view, uh, decriminalization is to lower the number of arrests, uh, jail time, courts, people getting fired for having a charge on them, people getting evicted for having a charge on them, people getting their kids took for having a charge on them. So that's not going to affect the amount of deaths either because it's um you know it's it, the the contaminated drug supply still continues it doesn't really change the supply so the the state has made this small move in response to us but but that may sound depressing but these two things are an example of community power you know the dolph safe supply and the fact that we arm twisted the state to do anything shows that you know drug user uh drug user organizing when we do it right, it can actually change things. It can push things. It hasn't won yet. We haven't got all the way, but you can see the little bit of community power that's in there. And so that to me, that's the hopeful part of this whole equation. The very informative answer there. Uh, I'm just curious if you've seen any change in the way the police have, have approached people because of the, the decrim law. Has there been a change in the attitude at all? Or what are you seeing there? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> The government of British Columbia decided or agreed to go right to the federal government and try and get an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act uh, starting about two years ago. And in that time, a huge backlash has brewed up uh, sort of um, towards homelessness and drug users and everything. And uh, since that time, we've seen a new city government get elected basically running on, we're just going to hire more cops. Whatever the problem is, more cops is the answer. So it's been a real um, turn to the right, I think. So the police are feeling very emboldened. They're not, uh, to me, in my mind, they're not really backing off on the because of decriminalization. They're going forward. They're they're just giving her because they feel like they've got their friends in office in Vancouver. The police union backed the current mayor and his mm -hmm. party, and they swept. They just like got a got a huge majority just on on all the boards. Um, and the council. So, uh, you know, I think the police are feeling very emboldened. So uh, it's, it's funny because there may be less seizures of drugs and less um, bothering people over possession, but the other types of police harassment have kind of increased. And so it's, it's hard to see in the signal, the decriminalization signal in all that noise of mm -hmm. like hyped up aggressive policing, you know? I see. Yeah. And I mean, that's a nice, nice segue into our second question here, Garth, is that 
you know, fast forwarding significantly. This past week, we saw the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver police engaging in systematic sweeps of the downtown east side with about a day's notice, um, where a perimeter was set up, city workers and police literally threw people's shelters and tarps and belongings into into the backs of garbage trucks as they were forced to watch. Uh, it was done with without an influx seemingly of, of emergency shelters or contingency in any way. In an era of where truth and reconciliation is, there's such heavy dialogue about it and trauma-informed practice in workplace settings, in establishments, there's a Again, a dialogue about how to treat people in an informed way, understanding their lived experience. And the, to me, like, I don't know if I've seen something so devastating in Canada within my lifetime as the, some of the images that came out of this past week. And the images on, on the TV or on the news are one thing, but I guess for someone who's as connected as you are, Garth, what has been your real life experience with it? What have you seen? What has been the emotional toll? Well, I, I should say, like, I'm kind of empowered to talk about things that I have accountability to the movement on, you know, so Vandu asked me to work on decriminalization, like the board of Vandu asked me to do that. Um, I sit on the board of the methadone group. And, um, you know, as one of the co founders of Dolph. So like, there's some things that I'm empowered by the movement to speak on. I'm not um, a part of the stop the sweeps coalition. Uh, although, um, you know, many, many years ago, I did live in a tent camp that was evicted. Uh, in in much the same way, and I have come out as a supporter, you know, as a witness and a supporter to many tent camp evictions in Vancouver. Uh, maybe over there's been I think ten over the last decade. You know, they seem to do one a year. And Crackdown, also the podcast that I make, has covered the eviction of Oppenheimer Park in 2020, which led to people camping in Strathcona Park and an eviction there and Crab Park and an eviction there, which led people to Hastings Street, which they're now evicting. So mm -hmm. they've been just chasing people around everywhere. And then there's also people who are there um, on the street because we have such shitty SROs, uh, single room occupancy hotels, the, the cheapest housing in Vancouver that um, run by slumlords. And often like there's no, there's no um, concern or no attempt to enforce uh, building codes and fire codes in these places. So a couple of these have burned in the last year, which have put, well, killed, uh, killed somebody and also put, um, put people out on the street. So there's been a lot of drivers and I, I have myself been in an SRO that's been on fire before. And I can tell you it's fucking terrifying. You know, um, it's terrifying, but it's also banal because people sort of get used to it. People just get used to the bad conditions and, and used to like things catching on fire and that. Uh, so, you know, as a supporter, as somebody who's just come out to, to like witness and stuff, um, you know, I just, I see that, uh, there is a cycle where there's evictions and they sort of try to give people some kind of temporary housing or shelter or something like that. So for example, in the Oppenheimer park eviction of 2020, they had hotel rooms, you know, like COVID hotel rooms. And I had the Minister of Housing, Shane Simpson, from the British Columbia NDP provincial government on crackdown. And I asked him, will you make a commitment to ending the cycle of evictions now here and not like creating another and another and another? And he said, he kind of hummed and hawed. He goes, well, that's the discussion. Well, personally, that's what I want to do. But uh, the premier, you know, he, he, he convened the cabinet and it's kind of like didn't give me a commitment. Of course, who am I? <laughs> but like he wasn't he wasn't willing to commit. And here we are. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so I think the difference with this one also is, you know, it, it's it's like they don't even have the pretext of having uh, somewhere to go. There's never been a real commitment to building a home, like a place where someone would want to live for the long term. It's just like, is there a shelter? Is there some hotel room? Is there some SRO where we could move people from the camp just to get them out of the public eye? And uh, they don't even have that uh, pretext now. And the mayor, everybody admits it. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's an eviction to nowhere. So it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty bleak. And, you know, you've seen the police, you know, some of them have been really aggressive uh, doing mm-hmm. this. And uh, so I just, uh, you know, in some ways, in some ways, it's it's like um, you know I'm I'm here to do the drug user liberation stuff, and mostly this is about rent. You know, this yeah. is like uh, everybody does drugs who have houses, who don't have houses, whatever. Uh, but this is really about rent. You know, it's the rent is twenty five hundred bucks average for a place in Vancouver. That's why you have tent camps. You know, there was like. Uh, I don't know what you call them, like uh, hobo jungles or whatever. In the 30s, when there was a depression, it's not—it's not because fentanyl. It's not because it's just because the housing crisis. It's just mm-hmm. because we decided to completely turn housing over into a commodity, not regulate it, and just let um, let uh, let this whole city get kind of asset mined. Um, and this is the consequence after decades of also not building housing. Federal government stopped in the 90s. British Columbia kind of stopped uh, sometime after that. And so if you don't build public housing and just leave everything to the market, that's this is what it looks like. Right. Do you expect any intervention from the federal government about this? Like, or, uh, or any response even? Like, even like, a, again, like in, in when we have a federal government that has said one thing and done another in the, over the past number of years and claimed that, say, truth and reconciliation is at the utmost of their priority and then not followed through. And to, I mean, the image of an indigenous population in some cases being subject to, to this treatment in this era is, seems particularly egregious to me. I wonder if, I they mean, will, uh, if they will step forward. I haven't seen any commitment from the federal government that would indicate that they're willing to take serious action on this. I mean, what this requires is uh, many billions of dollars to be spent building public housing, not just, social supportive housing, but just public housing for regular wage worker, regular people, you know, just like to basically cause the rest of the housing, the private market housing to rents to be forced down, right? Because if you can get a a cheaper public housing spot, of course, the rents are going to have to lower in the rest of the city. So it'll have to be built in such numbers that you can drive the whole market down. And I haven't seen, um, you know, any real commitment to do that. But I think that's it's important to think about uh, the role of colonialism in all of this, because a lot of people live uh, along Hastings and have lived in parks, a lot of indigenous people, because they were displaced from the territories which their nation, uh, you know, originally occupied, held title to, and then faced the forces of colonization. Of course, those nations still are title holders, but um, the, the governments and industry have, you know, forced people from where they would have traditionally lived. And so I think you're seeing like a kind of double displacement as people get um, evicted yet again. And I mean, there needs to be some sense of justice for that. You know, it's, it's, uh, but I agree with you. It's mostly uh, in, especially in this context, it's mostly just nice words, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's what I would expect. And I wouldn't expect anymore. Like you said, Garth, the programs for those, uh, uh, low-income housing uh, stopped 20, 30, 40 years ago, and 
there hasn't been any more real money put towards those type of efforts since. Um, it's kind of a shock to people, but most like governments in the industrialized world have had for a very long time public housing programs. They just build housing for like regular working class people. You know, it doesn't even need to be social housing. It just like for a big chunk of their society and Canada has just gone free market, you know? So we just have, we just decided not to do that. We decided also not to do food security. We rely on food banks. Lots of other uh, wealthy countries don't have constant food banks. You know, we've really created like a, a hellscape because of since the 90s, late 80s and 90s, a total embrace of market forces to decide everything. Mm-hmm. And the state puts on a little show of doing things. So it, it looks like that the state cares, but they're never, they're never enough, or they may themselves rely on nudges and market forces to uh, achieve some housing goal or something. And of course, that's not what the market does. The market is an escalator for extracting wealth from everywhere else and moving it to the top. And that escalator has been very efficient over the last 30 years. And that's why, that's why we are where we are, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go out and be part of just a small part of a, a group of people supporting people who are camping on Hastings street and trying to like, say this eviction is wrong. It's like, you don't think the, the, that a tent city is, is right. Is the final answer. It's a defensive move, right? It's like, you're covering the retreat. The fact that we have tent encampments and not have actual housing already shows how much our movements have lost already shows how much our people have lost and been defeated by um, market forces, you know? Uh, so this is like a real, it's a real sort of a retreat, you know, but you have no choice when people are getting brutalized, you got to stand up, you know, mm-hmm. Nathan and I were just talking before you came on Garth about the, the monthly amount for, for welfare in our province and the amount for an SRO being uh, uh, welfare being what about 500 bucks and SRO being about 375. Like how would it, that, that leaves $125 for living for everything for food. Well, well, those numbers have gone up a little bit, but um, like I take your point that um, most people are paying part of their support money to pay, to cover the rent, Yeah, you know? And so every time the state increases uh, the dole a little bit, the landlords go and snap it out, you know? So even, even welfare is actually for the most part, a transfer program to landlords, not to poor people. Right. You know, so even when the state is doing something that everyone wrings their hands and says, oh, these people on welfare, and I I have been a welfare recipient myself, I count myself among them. The main beneficiaries are landlords. You know, it's even then, I'm just pouring myself another cup of coffee here, guys. Uh, (laughs) Good. Stick with me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll ask you this, Garth, like, and this kind of fits in with the next question about about hate and comments that you read online. And one of the, one of the most classic comments you read online is get a job. These people need to get a job or suggesting that, that what is, has already been provided to them is enough for any kind of mobility or upward mobility or just survival. And this past week, like the, how much hatred and uh, contempt for this population has really, it, that just sort of scratched the scab off, I think. And it exposed what a lot of Canadians seem to feel. And that is that this population is less than human, that the unhoused population is less than human and that those with an addiction are less than human. And if you have both, you are 
scum. And that's, I mean, that's almost verbatim some of the messaging that's out there. Very discouraging, very disheartening to read. To think that anyone who's in that situation is hearing that is pretty devastating. But as an advocate, how do you how do you sort of muster the steam to continue to go up against that? And is it just a matter of educating people? Is it people's lack of education? Or is it something deeper that makes people have that contempt? I mean, people who are people who are unhoused hear that plenty. Like uh, that was that was my experience when I had uh, less stable housing back in the day. I heard get a job and all that stuff plenty, and you know people still tell me to do that even though I have about three <laughs> jobs. So <laughs> you know, um, it's it's like uh, I I don't think it's necessarily just a lack of education. I think that our society right now is organized around the enrichment of a very, very few people at the very top, you know, like people like uh, Galen Weston who run a whole, uh, you know, a, a whole bunch of supermarkets uh, in Canada, like a, su a supermarket <laughs> tyrant. There's a very small amount of people. Um, I think 80 or something like that, that own almost half of the wealth in Canada. And that concentration has gotten smaller and smaller and bigger. And, and the wealth has gotten larger and larger uh, over, over the last couple of decades. And, in order for that to work, the rest of us have to be divided. Because if we all looked together, we looked up and saw how much wealth is being concentrated there, we wouldn't stand for it. So mm -hmm. they have to divide us against each other. So the fact is that somebody who's paying too much money for a tiny shitty apartment in Vancouver and somebody who's living in a tent on the street in Vancouver, they got way, way much more in common than, uh, you know, one of these plutocrats and even mm. somebody who's paying a getting killed underwater by a mortgage payment for a very small, uh, you know, studio condo or something like that. All of these people got uh, everything in common. But but of course, the ancient game of rulers is to divide us and pit us against each other. And that's what I see when I see people making these comments. I, I just see there's there's someone whose well-founded alienation, whose real genuine and and right sense of anger has been misdirected by somebody else yeah you know so like pierre polyev for example he's going to be probably the next prime minister of canada he says everything feels broken everything's so expensive nobody cares about the little guy all these things are true and so people hear that and they're like damn right damn right but then he will he will redirect Mm -hmm. who's to blame for that, right? He will actually, him and the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, they're all the parties of bosses of this country. And they want us fighting against each other, not actually looking at who's benefited. During the pandemic, we saw the biggest transfer of wealth from the public public purse to the private sector in the in the COVID programs. And I don't mean the, the SER benefit, the 2000 bucks a month that regular people get. I meant the employer and the big corporate benefits. And and yet we are supposed to be angry at like somebody who got Serb who shouldn't have, or you know what I mean? We're supposed to be fighting over crumbs while they're getting the whole meal. And I'm sick of it, you know? And when you see people um, saying these really shitty comments about get a job and whatever, it's it's like they don't understand that, that firstly, a bunch of people in the tent camps have jobs right? Like you can yeah. have a job and still not afford to have places in Vancouver. The, the minimum wage has not kept up with the rent. So, uh, you know, if they thought about that, they might realize that, you know, and the second thing is there has to be a certain amount of unemployment in a capitalist society because that keeps pressure down on wages, right? If everybody had a job, we could all say we want to raise uh, or else we're leaving work. 
and the employer would have no choice but to give a raise because there's no one else to fill the spot. But if there's a bunch of people lined up to take your spot at work, you can't make wage demands as easily. So like these are structural things, right? And to blame them on people, uh, it's just shitty. And it just shows that people's alienation has been weaponized against them and their fear. And the VPD plays a big part in this. The Vancouver police uses uh, media, social media. They have a communication shop that's very effective. It's scaring the shit out of residents for the past year and a half, particularly before the election. So that people just think, oh, everything's terrible. It must be because of these people in tents. You know, mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry, but, you know, 100 tents along Hastings Street is not causing the, the collapse of civilization. It's just, it's a symptom of it. It's not mm-hmm. a cause of it. Yeah, it, 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 it really felt like, and this is going to sound radical to some of our listeners, but like, it, it felt to me like World War II style propaganda techniques that you have to have someone to blame and mm-hmm. that a poli- like a police state needs someone to blame. And like, I think back to the, to pre-election in Vancouver, the, what were we seeing in the media constantly was the random acts of violence. There was footage every night on the news of, of random acts of violence in Vancouver, of someone walking down the street and getting, getting attacked or getting hit or, or shanked or whatever it may have been. And not to deny that those things didn't happen. I can't confirm or deny, but it was certainly felt like sort of political propaganda because simultaneous that political push for the police was simultaneous, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's a real old one in this city. You know, every time you hear um, chronic offenders or repeat offenders or stranger attacks, you can look back in the media and find in the 90s, we had a big scare around this. Um, You know, even in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, there were um, reports in the in the old newspapers back then of um, I know they particularly like to report on repeat offender women criminals who are wired to heroin, <laughs> you know, mm. stealing the luggage or stealing the silverware or stealing Mrs. Somebody's fur jackets or something, you know. And and these reports are, um, you know, as breathless and scary back then as as the ones are now. Back at that time, of course, the the scare the scary news reports, um, you know, help pave the way for prohibition uh, and the you know, the eventual Opium Act of 1908. So like we've been here before a bunch of times. And uh, I think what we know is that uh, police don't change those outcomes. You know, police uh, help help generate these news stories, but there's no way you can have a cop at every corner and every coffee shop and every table uh, to, to watch over every person. I mean, that's a police state, right? Like, so you, you got to look to... Um, First of all, you got to look to the statistics that police provide. Like, I I believe the Vancouver police should be covered like, you know, like a, a political advocacy group, uh, not not as this neutral uh, body that that issues statistics. Any police statistics that come out of there, I'm super super suspicious of, because the VPD only shares information when it's for their benefit. So if anybody out there is a journalist covering the VPD, think about that. Why are you seeing this information now? Uh, you know, if they're coming out with a new statistic like stranger attacks, four per day, mm-hmm. you got to think, well, is that up? Is that an increase? What does it compare like to other cities? What do we define as an attack? How do we know this? Um, just just a few more questions because I, like I, I, I think everyone should feel safe and I, I feel for people who have been attacked and I, you know, like I don't think we should have that, right? But also when you dig in a little bit, you realize, oh, this is a new category of crime. So we don't even know if it's gone up or gone down. What we do know is that over 
many years, there's been a large decrease, like a big trend across North America of decreasing crime and decreasing violent crime. But at the same time, there's been a counter trend of increasing coverage of violent crime. So mm -hmm. actual violent crime going down, coverage mm -hmm. on it just spiking way up, right? So you get the feeling that it's a much more dangerous world than it was in the 70s or 80s, but that's not really true. You know, so, um, and, and I think when, when police realize they can weaponize that kind of information to help their buddies get elected, help people get elected who are going to increase their budget, because that's what's happened in Vancouver. We now have a $400 million police budget where two years ago, we were talking about whether we should freeze the police budget. Uh, so, um, you know, the police got their way. And I, I, like, I think that's a big part of why people are reacting the way they are because their alienation is being weaponized and because police are a big part of that. Came out this week that police chief Adam Palmer makes just shy of a half a million dollars a year, CEO wages. I, I, I just, that's shocking. <laughs> that's I, I, like, again, I, I don't know how to compare that to <clears throat> Los Angeles or New York or Toronto, but that's an astronomical amount of money. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're very good um, advocates for their own um, budgets and wages. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was in this uh, meeting with a bunch of people when the city was thinking about decriminalization. You know, I was with Van Du and we, we joined this Zoom meeting and there um, Adam Palmer was, was there. And so was the mayor and all these other high ranking people. But the most powerful person in the room was Adam Palmer. Everybody deferred to him. He used up the most airspace. It was clear this guy is the most powerful politician in Vancouver. He's not elected, but he's the shot caller. You know, if you get offside with the police, as uh, as um, uh, Kennedy Stewart did, your history. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's the that's the lesson I think that the police are teaching any anybody who wants to get elected, get critical of us, and you're gone. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Garth, thinking back to, I'm admittedly younger than both of you gentlemen, but thinking back to the Vancouver of, of my childhood, I didn't, didn't grow up in Vancouver, but I would go there lots with my family. And, and that was in the early nineties. And I can remember as a kid, the, like the, the, the grit, the diversity of the population, the fact that it was that there was something about it, like an energy, uh, a, a vibrancy to the culture, that there was a integration of the culture. And it doesn't feel like that anymore. And I, I wonder, as I'm asking about if, if the 2010 Olympics changed that, or if that was kind of a line in the sand, but going into Vancouver now, it's, it's very much less of an integrated community. It's a much more homogenous community. And that, that little bit of sort of that, cool gritty culture that used to exist is now like very very narrowly condensed and i, I mean I, maybe i'll ask you what are the what is the cost of that down the road is will vancouver in another 20 years will it be just completely washed of any vibrant culture yeah i mean there's a real um i think a lot of what you say is true like that was the vancouver i grew up in you know i i've i've been here for a long time and I mean, East Van used to be a uh, working class, you know, it's not like that anymore. They've just uh, squeezed and displaced everybody out of here slowly, but surely over a couple of decades, just made this place unlivable for, for a lot of people, you know? So it's like, uh, 
Uh, and that means like working musicians and artists and stuff can't find good venues here because venues can't afford to operate. You can't find rehearsal spaces that are cheap because nothing's cheap. Can't afford to live here. So uh, yeah, it moves the, the vibrancy out, you know, and the, you know, main purpose for uh, housing here, the main industry is condos. The main purpose for them is a place to just store money and investment, not even necessarily store people, you know, not even necessarily to live. So it has made it a much blander kind of city for sure. It's, it's been, uh, you know, three decades of class war and that's, that's the result. I, I think it's an astute observation. You know, I kind of, I kind of sometimes see little bits of the old Vancouver poking up through the new polished mm -hmm. glass and chrome Vancouver. I mean, just try and figure out how many greasy spoons or rooming houses or whatever there used to be compared to what there is now. It's just like, you, you can't go for breakfast somewhere cheap anymore. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a different place. I wonder how closely that would correlate with the cutoff as far as the lack of funds for low income housing and the complete arrest of any efforts towards combating the, uh, you know, continual increase in the, how much it costs to live there. I bet you if you, uh, you know, right along the lines of when did they start calling Vancouver the no fun city? Was it, you know, probably after the nineties, I would guess close to around there. Yeah. Right. I, when I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's a term that, that kind of popped up. And I think it has a lot to do with that where you're, you, you just, you've, you've created a space that no longer has the, the raw ingredients or raw materials for uh, any real culture to, to exist. Well, you know, the, the good thing is, is wherever there's a place like this, there's always underground culture. You know, mm -hmm. I think about um, uh, gigs at the black lab, which is a little uh, venue uh, collective on like man Hastings. And they have like uh, jazz, hip hop, funk, like punk gigs there, all kind of stuff. And it's, it still feels just like, that just like it did back in the day but it's it's all people who are like we're not alive back in the day so right. um, you know there's always <laughs> there's always people who are gonna who are not gonna sit around and and just and just let the city um you know smother them so uh, but i i agree you know i don't want to seem depressing there there is lots of resistance here there's, mm -hmm. there still is a place where movements of people fight back, like the Vancouver Tenants Union, like Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. But it's true, this place does feel like a necropolis sometimes, like like in terms of the death of culture and, and, and all that, but also like genuine death. Like this is a place where people yeah. come here to die. You know, the drugs are killing people. Um, our, our lack of compassion kills people. Uh, like heat domes and stuff kill people and that's to do with housing and stuff as well. So, yeah, I mean, it is really, I think a necropolis sometimes is, is how it feels a city of the dead. Just as a kind of out there question, I wonder if over the years living down there, Garth, if you've ever uh, heard anyone kind of table the idea of a, almost like a red light district, has that ever been put forth as something that could be uh is sort of an addition of low-income housing and a project where um, there was an agreement between people who maybe don't want as much attention from the police or don't necessarily ascribe to the same style of living. In other words, maybe like true-blooded anarchists, that type of thing. Because there's always going to be that that kind of, uh, there's, there's going to be a subsection of every city that that has that type of person. 
has anything ever been discussed like that batted around as an idea i mean uh like back in the day um when robert picton was was hunting people in the late 90s there was discussion of a red light district for sex workers right like a place where there was more safety and less policing and all that because even back then upset angry residents fueled by right-wing politicians were trying to drive um sex workers out of their neighborhoods and of course Mm -hmm. they drove them into industrial places which were not as safe and it was that same kind of backlash that we're seeing right now but that that's all that's all i can remember about that okay yeah just curious Garth's going to shift here a little bit. I wanted to to talk to you about episode 37 of Crackdown. And um, for anyone listening, I just, I can't recommend Crackdown enough. And, and Thanks. for our healthcare workers, and a lot of the people who are listening to our podcast are, are healthcare workers, healthcare workers who have um, had trouble with, with addiction or with gotten into trouble at work with, with drug use or whatever it may be. And the word that always comes up for healthcare workers is diversion and diversion for healthcare workers who have gotten nabbed by, by the machine is, is a scarlet letter. It's, it's the stamp that pushes you into a, a forced rehab program that kicks you out of work that might force you to lose your, your professional license. It's a word that like is a gut punch because it comes with so much stigma and so much shame and blame and, and it's, it's nasty. And so I'm listening to your episode 37, which is entitled drugstore cowboy. And I was just listening to it on, on Spotify. So I hadn't seen sort of the description and it's like, oh shit, you're talking about diversion in the context you're talking about. It's about taking up your prescription or, um, sharing, sharing Mm -hmm. what you have to help others, to get others out of trouble, to help others cope and manage in their lives, to keep others safe. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, in my, as I wrote out the question, it was like, you described it almost as like loving thy neighbor that you're, they're looking out for each other and kudos to you. And, and for anyone who, who hasn't heard it, it's should be essential listening. But again, to me, it speaks to the lack of understanding about what people are going through and our policymakers, whether in a, on a governmental level or on a, you know, the professional licensing level or healthcare employers don't seem to either hear that or recognize that that there there is a link between mental health, physical health, keeping yourself safe, keeping other people safe. How do we make people understand what it's actually about? Yeah. I mean, we, we made this episode because uh, when I first started reading some of the academic literature on drug policy, you know, it was all new to me a few years ago. And, um, I read about diversion and I just thought, oh, this is something I do. Like I've shared my methadone and my prescriptions with people who are really in need. And I've also been shared prescriptions from other people when I was really in need. And I, uh, you know, I've bought pills off the street because some people sell their prescriptions because they're, you know, trying to survive. And, uh, you know, I thought, though, this is our dirty little secret. But, um, you know, somebody had put together a study where they actually saw that there were there were real uh, reduced harms from doing this. And I thought, oh, we should share this with people. You know, we should like let people know that this dirty word actually for us is just sharing and survival. And that especially when there's a toxic drug supply, if you have um, some pills in your pocket that can get people kind of to the same place, um, but won't kill them, then you you have a life-saving solution right there in your pocket. 
And of course you're going to help your friend if you can. Uh, I haven't really thought about it in the, in the healthcare worker context. Like, you know, I, we didn't talk to anybody for this episode who is like a healthcare worker, but I, I know that a lot of professions and I, I think um, healthcare is, is like this, that you can't be on, you know, prescribed uh, methadone or, or, or um, opioids or something else for, for what they call substance use disorder. You can just do 12 step. Like that's what they make you do. And, um, you know, for people for whom that doesn't work, that's pretty difficult. So if someone has that, that need and they, they can't have any other alternative, it kind of forces them into this position where they, they might need to do the diversion thing. It's, and so uh, like, I, I think we got to examine that. Now I know some people are thinking, oh my God, I don't want my nurse to be all fucked up on this or that. But, but of course that's a different question. You know, like I'm, I'm on methadone right now and I'm having a, completely coherent conversation with both of you and uh, I'm on opioids all of my life and and I'm not intoxicated by that mm-hmm. you know like you know during work or whatever so I think like if you're unable to work for some other reason maybe that's maybe that's the issue but but I think people should um, focus on like everybody in healthcare probably has some drinks in the evening you know uh yeah uh, like it, like this, the presence of the substance in your life does not foreclose the possibility of you being a, a great employee, you know, and being uh, dedicated to your, to your uh, vocation. You know, it's just like, it's just like this, this myth that anybody who gets near opioids or whatever, is just like going to be some kind of monster, you know, and, and yeah. it's not that case. In fact, a lot of people work better when they can balance it out, you know, uh, it's it's like if you're if you're a drug user, you can really moderate that um, very carefully, especially if you're a veteran. You know. Well, the the suggestion that was implied to me by my employer was that if you are diverting, if you are taking some hydromorphone off the counter, you are surely then not still able to make the the sound moral choice to to give your patient their due dose, because you couldn't possibly do both. And and this is to me like the the oh, moral. So like if you would steal from the hospital, you would steal yeah. right out of a, a needful patient. Exactly. Yeah, and that's a big uh, jump in logic. It, it, it is, is a big to, jump. Yeah. <laughs> this is what yeah. this is always the suggestion, <laughs> yeah. and it's the moral judgment that moral that that you couldn't possibly have the scruples to give Jane Doe her her dilaudid because you're just a fiend who's going to take it for yourself. I never missed a patient's dose. Every patient of mine got their dose. No, it's very rare. Yeah, and there's very a suggestion rare for a healthcare professional that, to uh, to actually divert from a patient. And I, that was the parallel, <laughs> I guess, I saw in the episode was that there's the idea that um, for a doctor who's prescribing to to someone, and they find out that that person is sharing their their dilaudid, that that the diversion makes them exempt from ever being able to to get it again or that like there has to be some punitive part that like right, y- right. you you failed yeah. and therefore you've lost your prescription i mean we call it sharing and they basically call it stealing yeah you know and these are like polar worlds apart right like mm-hmm. uh, the guy pockets who was in our episode his his uh, doctor said oh you're basically stealing from the clinic and pockets was like well no i mean you gave this to me it's kind of my choice, what I now do with it, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> uh, but, but I think a lot of this comes from the rationing of Dilaudid or of hydromorphone or, or whatever the prescription is, right? Like it's controlled so tightly that it's, it, it gives it this, um, 
this need need for this scarcity causes the problems, right? Yeah. Like if everybody who needed this shit could get it, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have this, you know, we, you wouldn't have diversion, you know, you wouldn't have any of this. You wouldn't be accused by your employers of like taking it off the counter or, Oh my God, maybe you would take it from a patient or whatever, because you would already have what you need. You know, so we've, we've had this, um, you know, we've set up this system where this is so there's so much gatekeeping and, and rationing of this, that people can't, can't get what they're going to need, you know? Yep. That's exactly right. Oh shit. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize that, uh, that it happened to you. That's, that's really, I mean, I just think of part of, part of what I really hate about prohibition is how it fits you up for character assassination, right? Like I still, I still try to research the hell out of everything and, and, you know, speak as eloquently as I can. Cause I just presume people aren't going to believe me because of just like a lifetime of, Oh, you're just a dope fiend. I don't, you're just bullshitting us. This is just a scam or whatever like that, you know, like just the not being believed and the worst things being um, thought of you, you know, like that they thought you would be stealing from, from a patient, you know, um, for somebody who's in healthcare, that's a, that's a pretty um, devastating accusation. You know, it's a really goes right to your character, you know? And, and exactly Garth and like in, in the healthcare setting, it is what, I think that accusation or that like moral high ground, it keeps the the nurse who, or any kind of professional who got into it with, with drugs or with dilaudid or whatever it may be, it keeps them down. It keeps them feeling disempowered. It keeps them feeling like they have to be sort of making up for, for this shortcoming or this fuck up. And like the, to me, the consequence of feeling like a, a failure is more devastating than taking mm -hmm. the drug like it's it's mm -hmm. as a for for your character for your mental health and well-being that is what is devastating is like that feeling of either oppression or judgment and shame i mean and you all have made it through this last period of providing health care to all of us during the pandemic Meanwhile, this big fucking movement of people goes and protests outside of the hospital and calls you killers and shit like that. And yeah. all this COVID denial and, oh, they're going to put microchips, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, and then, of course, you've seen so much death. I've seen a lot of death, too. And it is traumatizing, right? And after mm -hmm. all of that shit, you need a kind of like a warm hug. And that's, and that's <laughs> what opioids gives you is a warm hug. So believe me, I fucking understand, you know, like I really am surprised that, um, you know, to do healthcare right now, to be nursing, you're not issued a hydromorph when you walk onto the floor, you know, like <laughs> hey, buddy, you're going to, you're going to need this for your shift, you know, to get through like, I, because there's no other place in society. No one's taking care of the mental health and burnout of people who are providing the healthcare. Like as the system collapses, you all are like holding it together. And uh, fuck man. I mean, for, for all the healthcare people who are listening to your podcast, I, I empathize. I mean, I, and if you need a little something to get you through like fucking hey, you know, <laughs> I mean, Nathan, what percentage would you say of, of people that you encounter from the healthcare system, healthcare workers are nurses who have, gotten caught with hydromorphone well the ones i encounter uh there's many i mean we know that there's uh, i think garth what you're talking about is is probably more of a rational approach to uh, a day at work in a hospital for for nurses especially nurses are taking an absolute beating and have for 
I mean, this last five years, I, if you're a nurse that's still working and somehow found a way to get by without drugs or too much alcohol, uh, you are, uh, fascinating specimen to me because uh, it is uh it is nothing that a human being should have to be dealing with on a day-to-day basis yeah. and um i mean we know there's a there's a steady 10 percent is what they figure of uh any healthcare professional is using either opiates or stimulants at work to uh to get by generally that statistic has been stable for you know since the last time i seen data on it but i would wager that as of the last three, four years uh, with the staffing levels and uh, the pandemic, probably there's more people who have uh, fallen by the wayside or are continuing to work and they're finding a way. And that way would be, you know, hydromorph is the most common one for nurses due to its availability. But uh, yeah, I mean, these people aren't, they're not taking those drugs recreationally at work. They're taking them so that they can get through their day and um, it, it is an interesting point you bring up, Garth, about this automatic impairment title that goes mm-hmm. with any mm-hmm. kind of drug use, you're automatically impaired. That's a myth that I think came out of uh, maybe as a side effect of the the Reagan uh, when they were really pushing hard in the yeah. States. But, you know, many people, many people use drugs, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, to get through life and there's there's no real difference between the two other than one is regulated and less likely to get a surprise of a adulterant than the other yeah. but um but yeah just because you're taking hydromorph at work doesn't mean you're impaired i mean if people want to have a moral panic about anything to do with healthcare, it shouldn't be nurses taking hydromorph it should be austerity and budget cuts yeah. that is what kills people yes and, and in fact there are graphs, there are tables that shows uh, cutting this program will lead to this many deaths, et cetera. You know, like they have modeled that stuff. They know it, mm-hmm. right? So if if we want to, if we want, if people want to be scared and do something, fucking insist that healthcare be properly funded. You know, we've, I mean, this is a theme of this show, right? Is that we all know that toxic drugs are killing people, but austerity and budget cuts and the unregulated free market, that is the lethal thing. That is actually the planet-ending, imperiling thing uh, that we have to do something about. Well yeah. said. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Darth, we know we're, we've sort of reached our, our time with you here. I think, um, but do you have any other anything you want to plug or note for us? No, I, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, keep at it. Like uh, it's it's like a really important conversation. Like for people to hear truths from inside of the healthcare system, I think that's. Uh, that's really important. Like we all have to grow up and have adult conversations about drugs, but also about what it means to have a healthcare system, you know? So I, yeah. I appreciate that. No, we oh, appreciate the, your the, time. Maybe the last thing is uh, if, if people want to see um, the hospital employees union put out a statement of, you know, warning that uh, decampment, you know, the police evicting people from tent cities causes real impacts to people's ability to access uh, healthcare programs and has potential effects on people's health. I think that's an important message of solidarity from um, healthcare workers and their union mm-hmm. to people who are being decamped. It shows that we have that kind of common cause. And interestingly, our current uh, provincial minister of mental health and addictions was formerly an executive with the hospital employees union. And I think it's time for her to um, join the union and denounce uh, what's happening under her government's watch. Yeah, well right. said. Thanks, Garth. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks really appreciate your back. time. 
you guys, um, stay safe. Keep six. Uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Sounds thanks, good. Guys. All right. See you. Thanks, Nathan. Yeah. See you soon, guys.